Are you ready to take your leadership skills to the next level? Do you want to lead with confidence, inspire your team, and achieve your career goals? I'm excited to announce Lead Intuit is now offering leadership coaching. Picture this, 60 minutes of focused one-on-one coaching that will transform the way you lead. Whether you're a seasoned executive or just starting out on your leadership journey, Lead Intuit has the expertise and guidance to help unleash everyone's full leadership potential. With one-on-one coaching with me, you'll develop powerful leadership strategies, enhance your communication skills, build a high-performing team, and achieve your career aspirations. The website, leadintoit.co, is your gateway for us to work together and create a tailored coaching plan to fit your needs and goals. So don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to supercharge your leadership skills. Visit leadintoit.co, that's leadintoit.co, today. You're listening to episode 39 of the Lead Into a Podcast. I'm Sarah Greco, and I have over 10 years of experience in various roles and industries. During this time, I learned just how crucial leadership is as both an employee and a leader myself. This has led me on a mission to inspire and provide resources for those who have a desire to be a leader in both their career and their lives. The Lead Into a Podcast is designed to help you learn how to be a leader with advice, tools, tips, and inspiration from people with all different types of backgrounds. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Lead Into It. I am so excited to be back and sharing some of the conversations that I've been holding on to for about a year now. And this week's episode is with Debbie Story. Debbie retired in 2016 after almost 34 years with AT&T. And she shares so many stories from her time starting from entry level all the way up to when she was an executive vice president. These stories are so tangible in their leadership lessons. And when I say leadership lessons, I mean personal leadership, leading a team, any of those. And these are the stories that you can apply them to any point in your career. And I had heard Debbie speak twice before, and they were both at Southwest Airlines. That's why I asked her to come on the show, because in those two times, I learned so much from her. And I know the stories that she shares can really help people kind of envision what their leadership can look like and create their own stories of growth and continuing on in their career. I loved our conversation. I know that you will too, and you'll take some great lessons with you along the way. So enjoy. Well, thanks, Debbie, for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk with you and learn more about you. Thank you, Sarah. It's good to be here. Good talking with you. So I want to start out with where are you right now and what was the path that you took to get there? Yes, long, long path <laughs> to get here and circuitous. And, you know, you talk about a career plan. It's it's not the way I would have planned it, you know, 30 mm-hmm. some years ago. So, um, but today I am um, retired from AT&T. So I retired from AT&T after 34 years. And uh, I convinced my husband to retire with me. And we moved from Dallas, Texas to St. Petersburg, Florida. Great choice. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, little paradise here. But don't tell anybody that because you want to keep it that <laughs> right. a little hidden, Jim. But um, but this, what I always wanted to retire early from a big corporation, from a big job, because I wanted an act two. Because the way I think about it is act one is all around ambition and success and earnings and supporting yourself. And um, act two, I think, should be around impact 
and making a difference and mm-hmm. doing the things that are most important. And um, and so I uh, got very involved here in the city of St. Petersburg with the local arts community. I'm on a board of an arts district here and um, involved with other organizations that support um, women who are homeless and in battered women's shelters and so forth. So, And I was also getting very involved in um, the community and helping, you know, my passion is about helping give women the courage and confidence to do whatever it is they believe is their version of success. So I was doing a lot of that work in the community, but I was asked to, I was on the board still of the AT&T Performing Arts Center in Dallas, Texas. And um, they asked me to step in as the interim CEO in 2000 or very early 2007, late 2017, I think. Uh So, um, you know, I first um, chuckled at that notion because I live in St. Petersburg (laughs) and the centers in Dallas, but um, they were very persuasive. And I ultimately, and I do, I have such great passion for the performing arts. And um, I had been on the board of the Performing Arts Center since 2011. So, uh, and I had, you know, watched it grow and, you know, so I, I wanted to help. So I said that I would step in as interim CEO for just a couple of months. And that was three years ago. <laughs> so for the last three years, I've been commuting from St. Petersburg to Dallas um, and doing, a, I can't even call it a job. It's been a role that, that fits with what I wanted to do in act two, because it's been all about purpose and passion mm-hmm. and making a real difference for others. So, um, so it's been a great experience. If I still lived in Dallas, I would sign up to do it for the next 10 years. But, um, (laughs) but I am at, at one point, at some point, I'm going to retire again from this act two. (laughs) I love that. And having an act two is, I I like your mission behind your act two and how you want to have a drive and a purpose and you work towards that and you recognize that there was also an act one, which is really cool. That's a great method for a career. Well, act one to me, I needed it to be successful so that I could fuel my act two. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was really lucky in act one. I loved, I had 34 years with AT&T. I started as a clerk. <laughs> so I started at the very bottom, an entry level job. And I retired as an executive vice president, you know, of a fortune six company. So I was incredibly fortunate. I loved every job. I had 19 jobs in 34 years and I loved probably 18 of them I adored. And maybe one was really hard and wasn't my first choice, but, um, but I, I'm so blessed to have had that career. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first thing I did when I retired from AT&T was wrote a book. Uh, And, and the, my purpose in writing the book was that for so many years, I led big teams at AT&T. And so I, I naturally mentored people. And for part of my career at AT&T, I was the chief diversity officer and I led our corporate university and I was responsible for all talent development and succession planning. And so I did so much coaching and developing of people during that time. And I, and then I, um, I, I, I did a lot of speaking. So speaking to big groups about courage and confidence and leadership. And, um, and so as I was approaching retirement and thinking about it, I had someone say to me at the end, I did a presentation actually at the University of Georgia um, to a a big group, both administrators and students. And at the end of that presentation, someone came up to me and said, I feel like I've just been to church and (laughs) and I want the hymn book because I wanna keep reading about this. You should write this down so people can read about it. So I wrote the book, the way I thought about it is a gift Mm-hmm. to you know everybody that I had mentored I just wanted to get those tips and 
insights on paper um, and let people learn from my hindsight all the things I did wrong and the things I can now see that I did right. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the name of the book? Don't Downsize Your Dreams, Leadership Inspiration for Women. And, and and every man who's read the book and lots of the, you know, I've had lots of yeah. men reach out to me and say, why did you put that last line in there? Because I have to turn it over when it's on my desk. <laughs> but it, <laughs> but the t- it really is. Uh, it was designed to reach a, a niche audience. But um, but the book itself is, you know, the, the tips and tools are 100 percent relevant for both men and women. Mm-hmm. Is it still for sale on Amazon? It is. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll put the link in the show notes because I've read it and the stories and the advice and the methodology that you give in the book is so useful. It's so tangible. And it's something that like, I could see myself referencing years down the road, like every five years, just to be like, okay, this is a reminder. This is a nice reminder that maybe I should pursue this method or try this tactic. So I'll definitely put in the notes to have others read it as well. Thank you. And I appreciate your feedback. I wanted it to be practical and not Mm -hmm. academic. You know, it's easy to talk about the philosophy of success and leadership and confidence, but how do you practically do those things? And I I have um, huge passion about the stories that I tell Mm -hmm. that, you know, that bring to life what went right and what went wrong. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I actually received the book from you at one of your speaking events because uh, you were speaking about, um, it was EW, it was like women's leadership experience. Yes. Yes. It was so good. And it was funny when you're telling a story, which I'm going to ask you to tell in a minute, but, uh, the story that you told, I had, heard, I was taking notes furiously because I was like, this is so good. And then I had a deja vu moment. I was like, I've heard this story before. And it turns out I had heard you also speak at um, our international women's day at work too. And I was just like, this is such a great reminder. Cause at both points I was going through pretty like just challenging times at work. And I was like, oh, this is such a great reminder to listen to this story and to really take it and embrace the tactic. So I'd love for you to go into the story that you told because it was so valuable for me, but I think it goes back to when you were first hired as a clerk at AT AT&T. It does. And it's, it's about, so the way I, um, I think about my early success at AT AT&T is about, you know, uh, a couple of these quirky things that, you know, that are not traditional um, insights into how you succeed in business, but a couple of things I learned just by trial and error that I did right. And the first one, so the first key that I always talk about as my key to my early success is that I made great coffee, which is <laughs> such non-traditional <laughs> insight and advice. But the story is that, um, so I was a college graduate. I had a degree in uh, psychology and criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And had intended to go to law school and changed my mind, had a, you know, when I graduated and did an internship, actually, um, it changed my mind about what I wanted to do and what I wanted my career to be. So I didn't, when I I graduated from college, I had worked my way up to a vice president in a restaurant corporation. All through college, I managed restaurants. So I was now managing six restaurants in the city of Atlanta, small chain, but, um, and, you know, I technically had the, the title of vice president. 
but and but I in the restaurant business you have no life. So as much as I adored the restaurant business because you get immediate feedback and see immediate results, um, I knew I wanted to join corporate America and have a career in the in the corporate world. But I didn't know what corporation. I didn't know what industry. Um, what I did know is that I didn't want to bluff my way into a management position just because I had a vice president of a restaurant corporation title. I really was committed to starting in a business and learning from the ground up. But what I needed and what I shopped for was a boss who would give me a chance, who would say to me, yes, you're coming into an entry-level job, but if you can prove yourself and learn and grow, I will give you the chance to advance and to succeed. And I found that boss, Paul Hollinger. I found him at a printing company that was owned by, that actually was not owned by Bell South at the time, but it was, Bell South was its largest customer. Um, and the job that Paul Hollinger hired me for was a clerk. So I, you know, so I did, I knew nothing about the printing industry. It was completely male dominated business. I knew that much. Um, but I went to work my very first day and so eager and excited to step into my first you know, role in corporate America. And I sat down with Paul Hollinger and I said, OK, you know, with my pen and my paper in hand, you know, what is my job? What are my first you know, tasks that you want me to do? And Paul said, you know what, we've never actually had a clerk. This is the first time we've been able to hire a clerk. And so we don't really know. I don't really know what your job is, but why don't you start by making coffee? So I had this, you know, moment of horror where I said to myself, what have I done? <laughs> I didn't drink coffee. I didn't know how to make coffee. I didn't even know the apparatus that was required to make coffee. But I was smart enough to hide my dismay in front of Paul. And I thought to myself, you know, if this is my job, I'm going to make the best coffee ever. Because if I make the best coffee ever and I nail that one, then I know I'm going to get a chance to do something else. So I went to the a JC Penny store. And um, and asked a sales clerk, what does it take to make coffee? <laughs> she was nice enough to walk me through everything. So I came back to the office, set up this coffee station. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to come in every day and just make coffee and sit around. So I think every day if I come in and make a cup of coffee, what a great luxury I have this uh, this time that I have where I'm not you know, overly utilized, that I can get to know people and learn a lot about this business. So every day I'd come in and make a cup of coffee and I deliver it to someone new that I hadn't yet met. And, you know, I thought, how can, how can people refuse to spend five minutes with you if you bring them a <laughs> cup of coffee? <laughs> so I'd, I'd sit, you know, I'd say, here's your coffee. And I'd say, if, you, if you've got a minute, I'd just love to get to know you for a minute. And I'd, I asked every one of them, I sat down and I asked them questions about their career. Mm -hmm. How did you get where you are? How did you start? What are the keys to your success? What do you think you... How, why do you think you are where you are? Who else do you work with in the company to get your job done? And probably the most important question I'd ask people is, if you were president for the day, what's the one thing you'd change? <laughs> and so imagine what I was learning about, you know, career advancement and development, but I was also learning about the business and about what needed to change. And, um, and so it didn't take long before I was deliver still delivering coffee. I still kept making great coffee. But I was putting the pieces together in my mind that allowed me to make suggestions about improvements. So I was, you know, I, I would sit down with John one day and I'd say, John, I was meeting with Mark last week and the two of you each produce a report that has similar data on it. What if we combine that report? I'll help you. I'll, I'll help you create a format that both of you can just feed to, you know, your data into. And it's one report and it saves both of you some time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I started making suggestions about 
taking, um, making processes more efficient, you know, taking waste out of processes. Why do we have this step in the process? It seems like a wasted step. Let's just go from A to C rather than ABC. Um, and so I, um, I was having an impact just because I have a natural curiosity and I was having so many great conversations with people who saw what needed to be improved. And so at my six month review, I sat down with my boss and he said, you have become an invaluable asset to this department and to this company. And you did that not because of what I asked you to do. You did it because you went and found the things that needed to be done and you knocked it out of the park. You did them in an exceptional way and you never stopped making the coffee that I asked you to make your first day here. And so he promoted me that at my six month review and six months later, I was promoted again. And a year after that, when he was uh, selected to take on a new role, he recommended me to replace him. So I was promoted to the manager of the customer service department. So um, it's a, you know, the, I tell that story and I, I tell, you know, I use make great coffee because it's memorable to people. But, you know, it's a it's just a clever and memorable way to say one of the keys to success, no matter who you are and what your job title is or what your job is, is whatever you're asked to do, do it better than anybody else. Even if it's making great coffee, if it's sweeping the floor, if it's delivering papers, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is, do it better than anyone else. Cause that's what gets you noticed. It gets you respected and it's how you earn the right to take on more things. Um, it, it's how you become known as the go-to guy that no matter how small or how big the task, you're going to go figure out how to get it done and do it better than anybody else. I love the story. Every time I hear it, I feel more and more inspired <laughs> because I can imagine the feeling that you had when you were first told, like, why don't you make coffee? Because you're like, this is what I completely changed my life for was to make coffee. But the, the mindset that you put behind it transformed how you ended up progressing in your career. And I admire that greatly because I think a lot of other people might've just been like, well, I'll just make coffee then. That's it. That's all I'm here to do. Yeah. Well, and if, you know, it's also how you develop your brand and be, you know, you become defined by how you approach things like that. If I had, you know, had a bad attitude about it and said, well, he's just saying that because I'm a female and, you know, mm -hmm. he thinks I should be making coffee. I, I, people would have perceived me differently mm -hmm. and it never became an issue to anyone that I was making coffee because I was just doing graciously. I was doing it graciously and having fun. And, and had I been doing it begrudgingly, that's what people would have remembered. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's so true. But the other thought, the other thing I want to um, uh, point out to you is the way you talked with everybody too and got to know everybody in my like in my most recent roles I did 30 60 90 day plans they ask for that at the very beginning it's a great tool as you enter a new job just kind of saying what you're going to do for the 30 60 90 days in my 30 days I always say I'm going to meet for 30 minutes with every single person I will be working with or interacting with in some way shape or form because in one of my roles my new manager asked me to do that. And I had never done that before. That completely changed how 
I was perceived in the organization and I got to meet all these wonderful people and talk with them and build the relationships very early on. And it breaks through that like awkwardness. Like you had the coffee. I had the excuse of my manager telling me to do it. And it's just like that random awkwardness was like, Oh, Hey, this is our first meeting, but we actually have to get something done right now. Um, And instead of having that moment, you have like, Oh, Hey, how's your so-and-so how's your family? Like we talked about this before. Hey, this is the project you had mentioned. It sounds like we're going to start working on it now. Yeah. It just breaks through. And I can't tell like everyone should do that when you start a new job. It's just, it should be a requirement because it's so yeah. good for building those relationships. And those are relations. When you build those relationships, number one, people see you differently, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you come into a job and you have hard things you have to get done. And when people don't know you up close and can't see you up close and personally, it's easy for them to judge you negatively mm-hmm. when you're trying to do hard things. But when you've sat down with them and had a conversation and they've gotten to know you personally, it is much harder for them to judge you negatively. It is much easier for them to give you the benefit of the doubt, no matter what you're trying to do. Right. Um, and it's even more relevant when you take over a team. So when you take over a team, when you're leading people, it is even more important. I took over at one point in my career, I was still living in Atlanta, working for Bell South. And I took over a sales team in California. I took over the entire state of South California, the sales team. So they were um, spread out 4,000 employees spread out from Northern California, all the way to Southern California. And I committed to them that I was going to meet every one of them in the first 60 days I was on the job. And I did, I went to every, I did a, you know, a road trip. I mean, I flew to California, but I did a trip from Northern California, from the northernmost call center all the way to the southernmost one. And I walked through every call center and I shook everybody's hand that was at work that day. And, and it, that stuck with people that made a huge difference. I had to do hard things with that team, you know, Mm -hmm. run big centers. Sometimes you have to do downsizing and there's not a, it, it made a difference in how they viewed me. They viewed me as she does care about people. She cared enough to come spend time with us and get to know us. I also had, you know, individual meetings and, and it's, they are much more accepting when hard decisions have to be made. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. I, uh, when I took charge of a team, it was about 21 people. I made sure I was like, I'm going to meet with everyone individually and where I'm going to ask you five questions. And I told them what five questions I was going to ask yep. straight up. And they were like, after each meeting, almost every one of them said, we have never had this kind of conversation with our leaders before. And I was, that just breaks my heart because you yep. learn so much about folks when you have those kinds of conversations and learn about them and their goals, what they want and see if they align with what you're actually doing. Or if not, like taking them in a different direction that helps them along. Exactly. That That is truly one of the traits of a great leader, mm-hmm. the willingness to do that. And, you know, and that, you know, that's my passion again, is making a difference for people. When you lead that way, you have no idea what a difference you make for every one of those individuals you've given that time to and mm-hmm. paid attention to their input and their dreams and their goals. You've made a difference for them. Right. And it's never, you show that it's not about you as a leader. It's about them, which is the whole whole point of leadership. Absolutely. Totally agree. So one of the things that we talked about earlier on was making sure that you bring a solution to your problem. Would you mind diving into that a little bit more and maybe giving an example too? 
Sure. Um, so, you know, as a leader, I put my, I mean, now I've been through this, my, the example I'll tell you about is very early in my career that I, again, another sort of success that I stumbled upon, but um, as, as someone who led lots of people over lots of years, nothing was more frustrating than the person who constantly brought a problem and dropped it at your feet and walked away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and nothing was more energizing than someone who came and said, here's a problem, but here's a couple of options for solutions. And, and I'll tell you um, where, when it made a real difference for me. And this also is, this is a story about work-life balance as well. So um, early in my career, I was, you know, had risen beyond the customer service manager and I was, you know, part of the leadership team in the, the company I was working for, still the printing company. And, um, and I was a single mom. So my son was, you know, three and four, um, five at the time. And the printing company printing business was a 24 by seven job, which today everybody would likely say almost all jobs are 24 seven because we're always connected. But <laughs> right. this one actually had people working around the clock on, you know, big machines, uh, printing telephone directories, actually. And, um, and so it was a very demanding um, job in terms of the hours worked. And I had people on the second and the third shift working every night. And um, before we left the office every day at five o'clock, the, the leader, the, the president of the company, um, had a standing meeting. We'd all get together in the standing meeting. And the purpose of this meeting was to debrief on what happened during the day and ensure that we were all prepared for what was going to happen overnight. In case any of us got a call at home at night, you know, we'd know how to provide direction, problem solve, those kind of things. And um, my son's daycare closed at 6.30, and it was about 15 to 20 minutes away. So the meeting was always supposed to be an hour you know, five to six o'clock meeting every day, which always would have been fine for me. I could have easily gotten to my son's daycare center. But every day I was the only one in that room who had any sense of urgency about that meeting ended on ending on time. Uh, again, it was a very male dominated business and these were, you know, the eighties. And so um, I was the only female in the room and of course the only single parent. Um, so I was the only one that at six o'clock and six o five and six ten, you know, I started squirming and sweating every day because I had only a couple of options. You know, these were we didn't have um, iPhones and um, devices, connected devices. So there was no way that I could text under the table and get somebody to go pick up my son for me. So my choices were leave the room for a few minutes to make a phone call and get someone at the last minute to step in for me and go pick up my son or sit there and hope, you know, are we five minutes away from ending? You know, it's going to end on time and then I can run out or the worst option, which is sit there until I have to just run (laughs) and, you know, leave the room in a flurry of activity and make myself, you know, stand out. Um, so it was at way too many days, I made it to the daycare center and it was a family run daycare center, relatively small, but way too many days, the day daycare center leader was sitting on the front steps with my son, who was well aware that he was the last person being picked up that day. And I, I just, you know, one too many times that happened. And I said to myself, I, this is not um, sustainable. I can't keep doing this. And so rather than just go to my boss and say, I can't keep doing this, I thought about all of the options that I could present to him. And so I scheduled a meeting with him and I sat down with him and I explained that situation to him. And I said, um, you know, often at six, I said, I'd like to ask you to consider a couple of things that would help me greatly be able to manage this. I said, often that meeting um, beyond six o'clock, it sort of 
converts to a people are just sitting around socializing because they don't really have to go home until dinner's on the table. And I'm not being disparaging. That's just the way it was in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, they're kind of killing time with their buddies until it's time to go home. So the meeting could end at six o'clock. And so, you know, one option is I'd like to just ask you to think about that. If the meetings, if the business portion of the meeting's over, let's, you know, can we disband the meeting and, and then people who want to leave can, you know, gracefully get up and leave. Um, And I said, the other thing is any single day that you think that meeting's going to run long or that you need to me to work on the second shift or stay late. I am a hundred percent committed to this job, this business, and I will do that. I can manage it without problem. I just need to know in advance. And so if I could ask you just, you know, if we know there's a lot of activity going on and the meeting might run long, if you could just get, let me know a day, you know, more in that morning uh, sometime during that day. And I can make arrangements for my son. And I said, the final thing, you know, option is um, a a lot of times we had to be called, you know, we had to do weekend duty because the, again, the presses were, Mm -hmm. the work was continuing over the weekends. And I said, um, I will, I would love to trade off and make sure that my, my weekends, I didn't have help on the weekends. So um, that, that I can dedicate my weekends to my son. And so any day during the week that someone needs to work a second or a short third shift, let me do that. Let me be the guy to take that so that I can have weekends dedicated to my son. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, he completely understood he, um, it wasn't even an uncomfortable or difficult conversation because I wasn't giving him an ultimatum. I wasn't laying a problem at his feet. You know, we were talking through solutions. So he um, got it. He, you know, took all of the suggestions that I had given him. And every day that that meeting could end at six, he'd end the meeting and tell people that if they wanted to come to his office and keep chatting, they could. And it was a very graceful exit exit for me. Um, But the, the thing that was also a nice outcome of that conversation that I had with my boss is that the my my colleagues, the rest of the men around the table, they weren't blind to what had happened. You know, they were smart enough to sort of understand, you know, over time, you know, Debbie's got a son that she leaves and picks up and has to get to daycare. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made them think about what if I have women on my team who are going through the same thing? Right. Um, so it changed the mindset. And, and I was, you know, so proud of that. And I've, So the lesson is, you know, as you indicated already, the lesson is present solutions. And it's always, almost always okay for a boss to help you work through solutions rather than solve your problem for you. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other lesson that, you know, I always, that I think I took away from that is it's okay to set boundaries. You have to have priorities. Don't let your priorities get set for you by other people Mm -hmm. so that every day you go home feeling bad about whether you're giving first priority to the things that are most important to you. Mm -hmm. Think about it, delivery. Yes. And in the military, we actually were taught like present solutions with your problems because otherwise it's just complaining. Like that's really what it is. And the first time I ever did it, I was terrified. I remember like walking in, I was like, he's not going to like my solution no matter what it is. But he was like, actually, that's not bad. Just go for it. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's great. Like now I feel proud of myself for also coming up with a solution. And the leader was appreciative that he didn't have to think of something. Exactly. Problem. So it's incredibly important. I like that you brought up the setting boundaries 
Yeah. Um, as well, because that's incredibly important, especially as everyone's toggling between working remote and working from home and working in the office. There's going to be a lot of those very difficult conversations probably happening in the next couple months. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be a big change for, you know, so I mean, the, the world has shifted around us, right? The whole landscape has shifted and people are going to have to figure that out as they go forward. Mm-hmm. People's priorities has have clearly shifted during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at consumer buying patterns and, and see how people's <laughs> priorities have shifted and the quality of life. I think people now recognize as being important again. And it, to me, it's a, another great example of you know, when this world before COVID, this world was so always on that we let that drive us. You know, I always say, don't let activity drive what happens. Don't let the daily activity drive your priorities, because at the end of the day, you're not going to get done the things that were most important. And I think as leading up to COVID, we had become so um, oversaturated, overconnected, that those priorities were driving us. How many times do you get a text from someone? And even if it's just a friend asking about Saturday night, how many times do you have anxiety and say, I I'm driving, but I have to answer her, right? She's going to wonder why I haven't answered. You know, that's, that's letting the activity drive us and not really stepping back and thinking about what our priorities are and putting those priorities in order so that we're spending the most time and attention against the things that are most important. Mm-hmm. I, I've been hearing this a lot recently where it's uh, become the thermostat instead of the thermometer. So yeah. you're setting the temperature in which you're uh, being reactive to versus uh, reacting to the temperature. So yeah. those boundaries that you're creating will help become the thermostat versus the thermometer. I always love that analogy and yeah. metaphor. So it was one of those that I've kept. (laughs) Well, and it's, you know, again, it's just so important. And, you know, the other thing I think people um, need to understand is that throughout your life, your priorities are going to change, right? right? That's, and, and, you know, so many people now say this, and it's so true. I've said it for a long time. You can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. It's just not humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide at certain times in your life, what's most important, and put those things first. There's a time when you focus on your career and you're all in on that and you have to come home and say to your family, this is a decision that we're all making together, but now's the time for me to invest in my career and our future. And then there's a time that, you know, let me back up for a minute. I always say you can do anything yeah. as long as it's for a de- defined period of time. When you're making that decision to overly invest in your career and some of the family time comes second, don't make that be open-ended and indefinite. Say to your family, it's for a year or for two years, or we'll reevaluate in two years and see how this is working. Mm-hmm. And then truly sit down and reevaluate and say, um, is it time to make a shift? You know, I've got, I've made some advancements in my career. I don't want to miss any more soccer games. So I'm going to make a shift that puts those first you know, mm-hmm. for the next couple of years. So I just, I, I just can't overemphasize, um, own that and, and make it a deliberate process of setting those priorities and making the deliberate trade-offs, not letting them happen to you and waking up one day and say, wow, I've missed a lot that I didn't intend to miss. Mm-hmm. It's a very good point. And I think if this past year has proved anything to all of us, it is that even when you plan for things or do things like with intention, your whole world can just become like this crazy mess and you're going to have to reevaluate too. 
absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, one of the keys to success um, to me is flexibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's life is only 10% what happens to you. Yeah. It's 90% how you react to it and your attitude about how you react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, even when things like this pandemic happen, you know, adjusting, focusing on the things that are under your control, not out of your control and finding a new way to go forward. Definitely. Definitely. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was when I heard uh, you speak both times, those events were incredibly important to me because I heard from high level leaders and they talked about very grand level stuff too. It was like all around all different types of topics. And the other part of it was the networking and the amazing people I got to meet. And obviously like it was three or four years ago that I heard you speak, but it was still relevant enough for me to reach out to you this January and talk to you about like possibly coming on the show. And so I would love for you to dive into the importance of networking amongst women or just networking in general and building those relationships. So it's one of, to me, it's one of the most important keys to success in business. So um, I can't overemphasize this enough that you have, nobody succeeds alone. I've, I've heard, I've had, I've been blessed to know and to hear so many successful women and men speak over the years. I've never, ever heard anybody stand on stage and say, I did it all by myself. (laughs) I did not need anybody. In fact, people were just in my way, right? Mm -hmm, right. Um, You know, every single one of them would say to you and, you know, over and over again, uh, it was my, I took the help of my network. I got where I am in part because people gave me chances. People opened doors for me. I learned from other people. So a network is just so critically important. I remember years ago when I had an executive coach who told me, um, you know, you have a great internal network, but you have zero external network. You just haven't focused on that. And I thought, well, I work for a big company, AT&T, and I, you know, I've had so many opportunities in, you know, within the company. I don't know why I need to focus on that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started, got close to thinking about um, shifting to my act two that I realized when you go to act two, you need an external network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could tell you lots of stories about how I um, dug in and built that network. But let me tell you a quick story about how I got one of my jobs. And I think this illustrates the importance of a network. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working for the printing company still, and I, uh, Bell South, and, um, and it was, I, you know, I was purely working on printing and publishing. I had no involvement with the network aspect of what a company like Bell South does. And the head of all of network operations called me. I, I, I didn't even know that he knew who I was. You know, I had seen him on stage, but I'd never met him. And he called and he said, I'd like you to come interview for a job I've got open in the network organization. And I thought to myself, this is really nice. This is a token interview, you know, because <laughs> I'm on a list somewhere and there's no way he'd really consider me with zero experience in network for this job. Mm-hmm. So I went and sat down and talked with him. And um, about 30 minutes into the conversation, he paused and he said, um, I just want to make sure that you understand what this is all about. And I thought, well, here it comes. He's going to say, you know, this is just me and a chance to know you in case there's a future opportunity. And he said, you um, you are acting like I'm interviewing you for the job. And what this is about is you interviewing me to see if you'll come take this job and come work for me. Mm-hmm. And I and he said, because if you want it, this job is yours. Wow. And I said, why me? And he said, because you've got a network across this business 
who has seen you step up and do every job you've been asked to do and do it better than anybody else. They've seen you learn new jobs over and over again. They've seen how you collaborate with other people and the relationships that you build. And every time that I told someone what I was looking for in this job, they said, oh, you need to talk to Debbie's story. Um, he said, you've got a network that's working for you even when you're not in a room. And that's just the classic example of what a network is and how important it is. Um, one of the things that's so important for, in particular, women to understand is that research shows that women build networks that are bigger than men's networks, typically, broader, more people in their network, but on average, they are three levels lower than men's networks. And the way I've always interpreted that and seen it, I've seen it in action, mm -hmm. is that we, as women, we tend to build networks with people we're comfortable with. Number one, we lots of us think networking is sort of a dirty word, you know, mm -hmm. a, and we're uncomfortable doing what is the traditional view of networking. And so we seek out people who are, you know, at a comparable level to us, who aren't going to judge us, who are who we think we can really openly share some of the challenges that we're experiencing. And men don't do that. Men naturally um, seek out a network, people in their network who are multiple levels above them because somehow men just naturally seem to understand that those are the people who are going to get you where you need to be. Those are the people who can open doors for you. Mm -hmm. Do they give you feedback? Sure. But what's more important is they make, they make other connections for you. They introduce you to people. They stick your, their neck out for you. They open doors and they help you get jobs. Mm -hmm. And, and it's so true. And I can't tell you how many times I, you know, I've coached men and women, of course, equally over my career. Every time I said to a man, I'm going to introduce you to X, you know, who's an executive vice president. And I want to, you know, 30 days from now, when we meet, I want to hear about how your meeting with him went, mm -hmm. him or her. Um, 30 days later, every man would come back and say, I reached out, I had the meeting, here's how it went. 30 days later, I can't tell you how many women came back and said, well, he's busy, you know, he's a busy, she or he is a busy leader. Mm -hmm. I just, feel, I don't know, you know, should I, I didn't know how to reach out. I, when, women just are more hesitant about, you know, reaching up and grabbing that ring that's been offered to you um, to make that connection and really build a, a relationship, a genuine relationship with someone who's in a powerful position. Mm -hmm. So um, as women, we just have to get used to doing that. Everyone needs to get comfortable doing it because it truly is how it's, it's truly how things happen. Mm -hmm. Your, your colleagues who are at your same level can give you really valuable feedback. They can make connections for you, but not in the same way that someone at two or three levels above can. Mm -hmm. It's so important to just build that network and then also create your, or find that mentor and the sponsor, which I think you talk a little bit about in the book, right? I do. Yes. And can you uh, explain the difference between the two of them and why they're important to have both? Yes. Um, so I think about, um, so I'm in the performing arts business now. Um, so I think about the difference between a mentor and a champ, a, a, what I call a champion or a sponsor. Mm -hmm. um, a mentor is, is like a coach, you know, so it's like an acting coach. You're going to meet with them every you know, day or week or month, and they're going to give you great feedback and guidance and tell you how to improve your skills. Um, you know, you can commiserate with them. But a sponsor is like your agent. 
that's the guy that is charged with and and who genuinely has a vested interest in helping you succeed, get to the next level, get the the job, get selected. Um, and you you have to have both. So you have to have a a, a um, stable of mentors who can give you feedback, and that ought to be people who are like you, but a lot of people who are not like you, because you don't want your own behaviors and style just reinforced. Mm -hmm. You, you want people who press you to get out of your comfort zone and develop, you know, different styles, different capabilities and different perspectives. Um, Sponsors, you really have to be homegrown. It's really, it's really tough. You can't go to someone and say, will you be my sponsor? Right. Because a sponsor is someone who's willing to put their reputation on the line for you to advocate for you, to open doors for you. And in order to do that, they have to know and trust that you're going to live up to your reputation, that you're going to deliver when they open a door for you, uh, and that you're going to be, um, you're going to contribute to the respect and the reputation that they have and not detract from it. Mm -hmm. So that has to be a very genuine relationship that's grown over time. Definitely. And I've experienced both of these in like throughout my career. And it is true. Having both is incredibly important, but when you do find those sponsors and they learn about your reputation and they trust you and they know they will go to bat for you. So just be grateful when you find those sponsors because they'll help. They're the difference between like really moving in your career and just trying to break through. That's exactly it. That's a great way to say it. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say about a sponsor, I've seen lots of people do this, you know, find a sponsor and then they hang on for dear life and they think this is it. I've got my sponsor. Um, You need more than one sponsor because what happens if that sponsor falls out of grace Mm -hmm. or leaves or, you know, you have an issue with that sponsor and, you know, it becomes someone you no longer trust or um, respect. You just, you just need to um, diversify and ensure that you're not relying on one individual. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure for the sponsor. I imagine too, like, help me get out of the, like, I want to grow in my career. And the sponsor's like, okay, well, I need the right opportunity. I need to like yeah. get to know you a little bit more. So I can imagine the pressure that would be on that sponsor if they were the only one. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, you remind me, Sarah, so um, as I, particularly when I was in the role of chief diversity officer, I had you know, I figured if people got to me and asked me for a meeting without knowing me, mm-hmm. they must have exhausted every other avenue through their own leadership. And so I felt like I needed to meet with people. So, and I did, and I, I willingly met with just pretty much anybody who asked to set up a meeting with me. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a big difference between people who came to me and said, here's what I've done and here's what I love doing. And here's some stories about how I've driven, you know, how I've achieved success and how I've driven results and how I've led people. There's a big difference between that and someone who came and sat down with me and said, I really just want, can you just tell me how I can get from here? <laughs> and I, and I'm, oh, I mean, you know, literally, I mean, sort of to yeah. your point, relying on me to learn about them, to get to know them, to know what they wanted to do, and then give them some secret, some key that was going to unlock the, a promotion for them. Um, and, you know, to me, it was a difference between someone who was willing to do the work and understood how to demonstrate their own value and someone who just wanted someone else to do the work to get them promoted. Right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine sitting in that meeting <laughs> and just being like, 
I, I don't know. Like, what do you do? Can you help me a exactly. little bit with this? <laughs> Who are you and what do you do now? And what do yeah. you want to do? And, right. I, and I'll tell you, you know, it, the people that came to me and I'd never met before, but they had an engaging conversation. I left with this real impression of who they are and what they're capable of. I was willing to, first of all, I remembered them. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I was willing to meet with them again versus the people who sat with me and made me work for the whole conversation. I, it was um, not easy to agree to follow up meetings with them because I, it was uncomfortable for me and it was a lot of work for me. Right. And I it didn't feel I could really be successful in helping them. And it shouldn't know? be much work for you. Right. Um, and I will say as somebody who's been on the other side of reaching out to somebody who I was like, well, I think they'd be a good mentor. Send the email, even if you're hesitating, because it's one of those things where I did it. It was after a second time of meeting her and she was a senior director in my organization. So I was still kind of intimidated. I was like, oh, she's really cool. And I think we'd like do well. And I just went ahead and sent the email. She's like, actually, I was thinking the same thing. I'm so glad you reached out. Um, Let's definitely grab coffee. And it was just such a relief. And I like, even after leaving the organization, we still grab wine or like virtually whatever we can. And it's turned into just such a good relationship. So for those that are concerned about how to find a mentor, just kind of see who's in your network right now. And if there's somebody who you're like, even just have a little inkling, like maybe I just, I'm curious more about their story mm-hmm. then reach out to them and just send them a note, but also don't make it difficult for them. <laughs> like right. actually have a plan when you're going into that first conversation, make the conversation easy and effortless for them. Mm-hmm. And, and I, to your point, I, what's the worst that can happen when right. you email someone, not everybody's going to say yes. You know, sometimes emails just get lost. So don't take it personally. It's not it's hardly ever personal. Mm -hmm. It is just a function of whether that person is, you know, focused on mentoring, has the time to mentor, saw your email, you know, responded, but what's the worst that can happen? So you don't get a response or they say, no, move Mm on. (laughs) And then there's one story I do want to tell about why it's important, at least from my experience of why I needed a mentor so bad. Um, at one point in my career, I had entered a new role and I encountered a, just a very awkward, not like it was just one of those things where I felt like I was in between two people trying mm-hmm. to do something and two people were telling me very different things. And I was brand new in this role. And I knew I was like, there's no way I can look at this objective objectively and embrace it. So not even 24 hours later, I sent my one of my mentors a note saying, I'm in a really awkward situation. I have no idea how to handle it. Can I pick your brain? Mm-hmm. And the next day she was able to sit down with me for 15 minutes and I was able to just kind of dump on her. Like, this is what I'm going through. And she gave me like, she was like, okay, based on what you're saying and what I know, this is what I would recommend you do. Mm-hmm. And without that, it w- I would have just been totally lost. I would have had no idea how to encounter a situation I had never been in before. And I was incredibly grateful just to have that as something in my back pocket of like, okay, I have no idea what to do. I need somebody who has had experience like this before. Yep. You know, um, it's the other, it's the other thing that to me is very important about a network is that if you are going to grow in your career, it means you're going to get out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. It means you're going to step into roles that you've never been in before and, and find sit yourself in situations that you've never had to handle before. That is, you know, that's what growth is about is being out of your comfort zone. And it is so much easier to step into, take those big steps and those big risks 
if you know you've got a network of people who have your back and can give you advice and are not going to let you fail, that you can go sit down with and say, I have no idea how to handle this situation. (laughs) Help me handle it. Seriously, that's, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, the network is really, you know, in some ways sort of the wind, you know, it's the wind at your back. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not just the people who can help you up, right, as we talked about sponsors, but it's the people who are your peers who can give you input. It's the wind at your back who can keep you leaning forward when you kind of, you know, have those moments when you pause and say, wait a minute, I'm not experienced enough to take on that role or handle this situation. And they can go give you a little nudge from behind and say, yes, you are. And here's, here's how I'd suggest you handle it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You talked about a story in your book where, um, you, we're kind of hesitant to ask for help. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes. Do you do you mind going into that a little bit? Sure. <laughs> as painful as it is, so <laughs> I um I had again been promoted and um, was now sitting at the the head table, sort of you know the leadership team, reporting to the president, and brand new in the role, a couple weeks, and it was time for our annual presentation of our business plans to the entire company. So. Each of the leaders would typically every year stand up in front of the entire, you know, thousands of employees on a stage and give our business plans, you know, our what we uh, planned and expected over the next year. And I was so, you know, completely brand new to the team I had taken on and brand new to this leadership team. And so the president came to me and he said, look, you don't, you know, this is your, this would be unfair for me to expect you to do this. And so you don't have to give this presentation. And I and I was so young <laughs> and so eager and so inexperienced and so full of all this passion about this new role I had that I was like, no, I want to do this. I have so much I want to convey and share about, you know, where we're going, what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I said, I've got this. I can put, you know, I can do this. Um, I had never put together, you know, these are again in the 80s. So PowerPoint, I don't even know if it was PowerPoint at the time, but you know, I had never built a presentation, never given a presentation like this in front of a team. Um, I did, I had the brief moment of reflection where I said, I should probably ask one of my peers for help, right? Get their input on how you do this and make sure I can do it successfully. And then I thought to myself, I had the ego moment, which is bad, you know, so here's one of the mistakes I made. I said, oh my gosh, if I ask them, they're all going to roll their eyes and go, she's so, you know, yeah, see, she's young. She shouldn't have been promoted into this job. It's premature. She doesn't know what she's doing. So I went, no, I can do this. I'll just show them all. So I go create, create my PowerPoint presentation. And it was one of those horrific presentations with like four charts, detailed, you know, charts on every slide and a lot of paragraphs explaining them. (laughs) Every word I wanted to say, you know, those, you know, the classic, everything you don't do in a PowerPoint. Uh Um, And when it was time to give the presentation, the president, you know, president stood up, gave his, there was the the HRVP stayed up, stood up and gave his, and then it was me because I was operations. And I stood up and started going through my presentation, going through, you know, slide by slide, um, you know, I got to like slide two and I'm still explaining the second chart on slide two. And I'm kind of conscious of people shifting around their seats and I'm looking at the <laughs> clock that's in front of me and I'm going, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I had 10 minutes for this presentation and I'm now on slide two of like 20 and I'm almost five minutes in. So there's no way I can get through this. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm too inexperienced to even figure out how to get through this um, in an elegant way. So I, 
I start talking faster, you know, and, <laughs> and then louder too, because that always helps. Right? <laughs> and now I start looking around for support in the audience. I'm looking for my friends, right. You know, and, mm -hmm. um, nobody will make eye contact with me. <laughs> so now I look down at the front row at my boss. I, you know, I'm just looking for, just give me a thumbs up. You know, you can get through this and I, no, they're not making eye. He won't make eye contact with me. Mm -hmm. Nobody will look at me. They're all fidgeting. <laughs> So I knew I was in a moment of total failure publicly in front of the whole company, oh. the opposite of what I wanted to achieve. And so, um, you know, at the end of my 10 minutes, I said, there's so much more I'd love to share. Um, you know, we'll have to follow up in a separate setting and I'll share more with you. So I slunk off the stage and, um, and I went through the rest of that afternoon. I mean, it was so clear how miserably I'd failed and everybody felt badly for me. Um, and I went home that night as, as lots of people will do, but I think women are particularly adept at doing this. I kept playing the tape over and over in my head, mm -hmm. beating myself up, killing. I mean, I was killing myself. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And, um, and I finally said to myself, this is doing me no good. Mm -hmm. And I, I can keep doing this to myself or I can figure out how to fix this and I can address it head on. Mm -hmm. And so very first thing the next morning, I got there before my boss and I didn't even set up a meeting. I walked into his office as soon as I knew he was there. And I said, I just need five minutes. And I said, um, I just want you to know that I know I failed yesterday. And what's more important is that I know I failed you. And I am sure you are so disappointed in me. I'm sure this reflected badly on you because you promoted me and you put me in this position. And now I'm publicly showing how inept I am in front of the entire company. And I just want you to know I'm going to fix it. I'm going to take a public speaking course, a presentation course, and I'm going to fix this. And this will never happen again. Yeah. And I did, I went and took this, you know, terrible, miserable course where I see myself videotaped and, you know, see how bad <laughs> it was. And, um, but I got better. And when I, there was a couple of months after I finished both of those courses, there was another opportunity for a presentation to the whole company. And I went to the, my boss and I said, I know this is going to be a really hard request for you to accept, but I, I need you to let me do this one. Um, because I know I can do it and do it well. And it's, I cannot be defined by that failure that I had all those months ago. I need to reset the, the expectation and reset the under, understanding of what I'm uh, capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And so can you trust me enough to let me do this? And, you know, I saw his, a big gulp <laughs> as his Adam's apple worked its way up and down and, and he said, I will, and I did it and I nailed it. And, you know, so it's, it's a, another, there's a couple lessons there. As you said, starting out, it's about, I should have asked for help from the very beginning and not worried about how people were going to take that. Um, but the other lesson is sometimes public failures lead to huge improvements and, you know, good things come out of them. And over the course of my career, I got, I, I became known as someone who could stand up in front of a group or a team and deliver a great presentation and to be a great leader of people, you have to have that skill. Mm -hmm. And if I had never failed and never had a compelling reason to go take those courses and get better, I might never have developed that skill. Mm -hmm. So I see that failure as, you know, an example of sometimes failure is accidental, <laughs> and, um, but it's always an opportunity. Failure is never a life sentence. Mm -hmm. It's a life lesson and it's an opportunity to grow and do better next time. I love that. It's not a life sentence. It's a life lesson. Oh, that's great. Okay. So I have been a closing out episodes with 
asking the guest what their favorite book recommendation is for the audience. Uh, it could be professional or personal, but I'd love to hear what you would recommend. So I could recommend so many, you know, business related books, self-improvement books, um, but they would probably be a lot of the same books that other other um, speakers have recommended. And so I'm going to recommend one that may be unique and a little bit different. It's called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance mm -hmm. by Angela Duckworth. Um, and it's, you know, I guess I gravitate to this book partly because I believe so passionately in her message. I, but I think it's an important message that doesn't get told enough. And it's about that the fact that passion and perseverance are at least as strong indicators of talent as IQ related competencies. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I've seen it over, I've seen it in, as I look back in my own career, I've seen it as I look back over the people I've mentored. Um, it is a huge predictor of success, your passion and your, your, the, your willingness to have an idea, a thought, a dream and hang on to it no matter what. And then the perseverance to keep going and pursuing it, no matter what obstacles you hit, no matter who tells you, you can't do it no matter how many speed bumps you go through, it's the, pe the, the people who achieve great success have both of those things, the ability to keep going and never let anyone tell you what you can't achieve. That's awesome. I haven't read that book, but I've heard so many great things about it. Yeah, it's uh, a great book. And even she's a, she's a great speaker too. So you can listen to um, a TED talk or um, you know some of her interviews and, and get just as much out of it as the book. Awesome. I will definitely put her links in the show notes so that other people can find the book as well as some of Terrific. her speeches. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Debbie. I've learned so much from you over the course of years, and I'm excited that we were able to share these stories on the show. Thank you. It's uh, as, as you can tell, I have quite a bit of passion about sharing these, you know, these uh, lessons of success with other people so that, you know, I just always want people to be able to find the stepping stones to success faster than I did so faster and go higher than I did. <laughs> That's greatly appreciated. I can say from experience. <laughs> so thanks again, Debbie. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to another episode of lead into it. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you would leave a review on Apple podcast or Spotify to help future listeners. If you want to learn more about the podcast or me, go to leadintoit.co. That's leadintoit.co. Thanks again.